You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Back to Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, he's not waving, he's drowning. No, oh. it's Jeff McLeod Huge. Glub, 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 glub. Hey, hey, everybody. That's the sound that you can hear there is me, is me treading water. I quote Mr. McLeod Huge when I say, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> he, he died doing what he loved most, <laughs> gasping for air, panic swimming, panic swimming, yeah. yes. <laughs> feeding a shark. With his own legs. What's going on? What's new? Hey, guess what happened to me today? Uh, you didn't I, get eaten by a shark or you wouldn't be here. I did not get eaten by a shark. But I something happened to me that people dread almost as much as they dread shark attacks. Oh. I got summoned for jury duty. Oh, nice. Uh, so you get to go in there yeah. and be like, have, that man's guilty. And yeah. we haven't even started the trial yet. I've never successfully had to serve as a juror. Mm. Uh, I got my first jury duty... Oh, I think it was, I was like 18 and six months or something like yeah. that. It was like May. My birthday's in October and it was like May of the next year when I had to serve jury, jury duty. Yeah, they hit my, they got my son like just after he turned 18 too. So I guess then, you know, U.S. legal system is like uh, the, the big tobacco. You try and get them while they're young. <laughs> they're just sitting there waiting. It's like, it's his birthday. Send it out. <laughs> it's like, oh, another one for the jury pool. <laughs> Yeah, set a pack of smokes while you're right. at it. Yeah. <laughs> He's going to be on the class action suit for Phyllis now, Morris versus lung cancer. Yeah. Now, the weirdest thing is, like, I moved into this house like 15 years ago. I haven't had jury duty since I moved here. I, I was like, <laughs> they lost me. Right. Awesome. I forgot where you, you know. And I was, my friend Rob was over. We're watching wrestling. He We had said something about jury duty. And I was like, yeah, really weird. I haven't had jury duty since I moved here. And then, like, within a couple of weeks, I got the jury duty notice in the mail. I called them up. I'm like, you curse me, you <laughs> son of a bitch. It's like the old school, like, uh, sort of voodoo curse. Like, oh, well, I can stab him with this pin, this little doll, or I can just stick this envelope in his yeah. hand. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fun. Yeah. You know what you could do to, to liven things up yeah. is get that that law and order sound, you know, the dun -dun sound and just yeah, play yeah. it on your phone. Every time anybody asks you a question or asks anyone a question, I'll set it as my text notification. Noise. Right. 
The other thing I was thinking of was like the conspiracy theory that your phone is always listening to you. That like somebody heard me say that I I haven't had jury duty and that's why I got it. So hold on a second. Excuse me. Testing one, two. Testing one, two. You know, I haven't hit a life-changing amount lottery in a long time. Probably about 15, 16 years. Maybe that could happen. Oh, hey, yeah, that's a good idea. Dicks. That's, that's, I'll have to try that. Let's. What can I, what can I put down? Uh, what can my phone listen to and then deliver to me? I would really like a pizza. See if that helps. I, I tend <laughs> yeah. to think small and wishes. Work your way out. Work, Work my way, way out. Eat yeah. from the inside out like a pizza. I, I can't get my hopes up for the pizza, so... Really getting my hopes up for like sixty billion dollars is probably out of the out of the realm. You get some life changing amount of uh, of money in the mail, and then I get a pizza. And I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> like, hey Jeff. No, I think we got our wires crossed. Uh, That's okay. Yeah. You can keep the pizza. We're good. <laughs> <laughs> hey Jeff, how much would you pay for a pizza? <laughs> oh boy, I'd give you. Uh, um, see you later. Uh, nobody, nobody <laughs> here by that name. <laughs> All right, so uh, before we get started with the show proper, I do have my very popular and award-winning trivia question. Not long ago, I asked you, what was the first movie that was released on DVD? And I still don't even remember the answer to that, and we just did that one. It was Twister. Oh, that's right, Twister. It was Twister, yep. And so my question this week is, uh, on the other side, on the flip side of that coin, what was the last Hollywood movie... Released on VHS. Uh, uh, porn movies still came on VHS for a long time. I said Hollywood. I said Hollywood movie. Well, I mean, yeah, but they make they make porn movies in Hollywood, Florida. Doesn't that the same? No, it's not the same. <laughs> All right, the last Hollywood movie to be released on VHS. Yep. Assuming after it's been through the theater, right? And, oh and my god! Like, Don't overthink this, Jeff. Oh, jeez. Okay. Uh, is it Twister? <laughs> story? No, I'll it's give you. Chubby Checker biopic? I'll give, you the, I'll give you the answer at the end of the show. All right, great. All right, so this is the week beginning February the 14th. Ooh, Valentine's Day. <laughs> All right, yeah. So uh, being as it's your turn to start, what do you got? Oh. Well, happy Valentine's Day, first of all, Bill. Um, hey, thanks. You're welcome. All right, uh, February 14th. What'd you get me? <laughs> yeah, I got you uh, the starting off point for our, our week this week. Oh, okay. Uh, February 14th, 2005, a little service known as YouTube launches. Do you remember when YouTube launched? <laughs> that reminds me, I need to start uploading our videos to YouTube again. Oops. Uh, oops. Let me tell you about my experience with YouTube in the early days. Follow me back 15 plus years, Bill. Yep. At the time, I was a, uh, a very avid... 17. Yeah, very avid martial artist and found YouTube as a way that I could post videos of myself so that my instructor and I could watch them and critique them and not knowing <laughs> privacy settings. And the entire Eastern Seaboard can watch them and critique oh, them. Yes, the entire Eastern Seaboard, the entire martial arts community of the world. I was literally accused of being the sole source for the destruction of Kumdo, which is a <laughs> Korean sword art. And all I wanted to do was, like, practice a form and have my instructor help me work out some of the details. So <laughs> so YouTube, which is a you know, video-sharing platform that everybody pretty much knows, I'm sure, by now, was brand yeah. new. And was really interesting because it had to pre-cache all the videos so that you could watch it. So there was always, like, a 30-second to a minute buffer before it would start to play out. I remember those so days, yeah. It was really smooth, yeah. And there were no ads back in those old days, Bill. No ads. Oh. Oh, oh the good old days. Yeah, I mean, it's a, a push and pull right there. 
I mean, yeah, there was no ads, but you had to wait 30 seconds. So you could either just like stare at the loading bar or you could watch a you know potato chip commercial. Well, I, I, I remember when they used to have the, you know, do you want to watch an ad for a minute and then we won't bother you anymore before a video? The answer is always like, no. <laughs> yes. Uh, no, I'd be like, yes. And then I'd watch the video for a minute or go to the bathroom or get a cup of coffee or something and come back and watch the video. Now it's like they're in the middle of like they just drop them in the middle of like it's the middle of sentences. You know, yes, if you and yeah, I were talking, videos, it would be yeah. like, hey, Bill, you remember that time I gave you the ah? and then an ad for like a political candidate for 30 seconds. Uh, and then it dental, would, yeah. Right. And then it would come right back and be like the clap. And you'd be like, no, what? <laughs> no, you can't follow that. Like, that doesn't make sense. And yeah, and then some videos, like, you know, the, the more advertisements you stick in your videos, the more revenue you generate right. for yourself. So some of these YouTubers, you know, you're watching, like, maybe a 15, 20-minute video, and there's, like, more commercials that you could possibly have any use for. Yeah. Would you like to skip the ad? you goddamn right I do. Yes. <laughs> uh, I have a very similar story with YouTube, and I'm almost positive that we told this on the podcast before, but we do have new listeners sometimes. I was in a very ambitious let's just leave it there, uh, production of The Who's Tommy. And I had uploaded my song. I got to sing the lead on the song Christmas. And I had uploaded it, you know, to my YouTube channel to show, like, my friends, you know. Now, I'm not a theater geek. I never have been. And if I was going to be a theater geek, it certainly wouldn't be musical theater. That is not my thing, you know. I was only in that because I love The Who. Mm -hmm. So I uploaded Christmas so I could show my friends, you know, my, my lead for the show. And somebody who was a theater geek left a comment on my video, and they just simply said, why would you upload this? <laughs> it's terrible. My friend Jezebel and uh, you know former co-host of yep. the Twibbly podcast, she said it absolutely best. The YouTube comment section is the Moss Eisley spaceport of the internet. It definitely, definitely is. <laughs> it definitely is. There are some, I mean, I've gone through and read comments on some videos that have had me doubled over with laughter. I yep. just, it's just a thing. But yeah, to be on the receiving end of the ire of the internet is is fun. Is no fun. Oh um, yeah, it, yeah. When you're the punching bag, none of those comments are funny at all. Yeah. It's like, yes. why would you post this? Listen, shut up. Okay, that's why. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Because I wanted to. <laughs> I have a, I have a couple of videos that are that are still up there from when my kids were little, where I made a Godzilla movie with my son, yeah. which has like forty thousand views. It's got a ridiculous number of views. Oh nice. Um yeah, and it's called it's like called the oatmeal face video because the music that I stole from a Godzilla CD. Yeah. Sounds like it goes like dun 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 which if you're funny and you're talking to like a three year old and a six year old, it's oatmeal face, oatmeal face, now I kill you, oatmeal face. And made that. There's another video of uh of what was called like the Naked Barbie Sister show where I was playing with my daughter's dolls and I did like a I did like a variety show for her to show her like how you could do funny stuff like that. You can hear her growling in the background. It's really funny. Uh, moving on to February the 15th. I'm hoping I'm going to be saying this right. But on February 15th, 1946, the ENIAC, which is a anagram, E-N-I-A-C, for the Electronic Numerical Integrator and Computer. The uh, first. Yeah, it was the first general purpose stored program electronic digital computer. Uh, it's one of those ones that that they used to be like, computer! And it would be like a room full of, like, tall things and squares and, yes. you know, wires that crossed things. And, and one and person sitting at a desk with, like, a typewriter in front of them that you'd have to hand things to, and they'd be like, it'll be 10 hours, and we'll have that for you. With, like, the spinning wheel tapes that go back and forth, and then there's, like, a malfun malfunction, malfunction. Right. Right. It just spits cards everywhere, yeah. <laughs> the human. 
must be killed. <laughs> oh, no, that's not the right answer. Yeah, it, it could calculate 1,000 times faster than anything previous. And I guess previous to that was like, you know, pad and paper. Right. Yeah, it needed 18,000 vacuum tubes and about 130 watts of power. You must have just, like, had to operate it naked. The heat in that room must have been crazy. I'll say this. As someone who, like, talks to guitar people, yep. there's bound to be some twerp out there who goes, like, yeah, well, you know, I've got a solid-state computer. It's pretty cool, but it's no ENIAC, which is all vacuum tubes. Like, you get a warmer <laughs> sound. You get warmer calculations out of that thing. Much <laughs> warmer calculations. And, and I'm thinking, like, how far have we come? Where you had to be naked in front of the computer then, and then, you know, how many people are naked in front of the computer right now? <laughs> I, I, I keep imagining, like, you know, especially with, like, the way computers have been portrayed in the media. I mean, take, let me take you into the picture, Bill. Mm-hmm. There's two people sitting there, and one person is inputting data with a punch thing and a punch cards. Yep. And they start to, to run the computer, and it goes like, and you just hear this pop somewhere in the background because one of the tubes has let go. And they both look, and the computer stops because that's what happens when a tube breaks. And the first guy, the one that's not inputting data, looks at the person who's inputting data and goes, "Oh my God, what did you ask it?" <laughs> I was just wanted it to calculate some numbers. I wasn't asking it like to calculate the meaning of life, the universe, and everything. Interestingly enough, uh, whenever they say there's a bug in the computer program, you know, computer yes. computer bug, that goes back to the ENIAC. Uh, and I don't know if this is like hyperbole or an urban legend, but I know the story goes back to that, that there was like, because it had all these vacuum tubes and, you know, 130,000 watts of power, there's moths and moths clogged up the tubes and shut down the computer. So whenever they're talking about bugs in a computer program, that's what they're actually referencing. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it was like a giant bug light. Yeah. <laughs> a giant, very warm bug light. So uh, it was originally designed to calculate missile trajectories. Yeah. Uh, the engineer could calculate the trajectory of a missile in about 30 seconds, what would take humans about 20 hours to figure out. Right. So that's a big improvement. And then that was February 15th, 1946. February 16th, 1946, somebody said, I wonder if we could use this for porn. <laughs> Pop. What did you ask it? <laughs> <laughs> the worst part was yep. with the, with the ENIAC, as I understand it, is that you had to watch a commercial before it would. <laughs> and then and then the tube called you an asshole. Uh, rocking over to the sixteenth. Ah, rocking over to the sixteenth. Hey, speaking of ancient computer technology from the far distant past, mm-hmm. uh, February sixteenth, nineteen seventy eight, the first computer BBS goes live. It's called CBBS or Chicago uh, Bulletin Board System in Illinois. Yep. It's open first. I think it's in the Chicago, um, like Northwestern University system first. Yes. And then it gets open to the public. And at one point it had 250,000 people who were using it uh, before it was shut down. And it's like the forerunner of the internet. It was a connected central point where people could get together and have text-based discussions or share software files. But I don't think they were sharing software files as much as they were sharing a text file that you could copy and paste into something that would then turn into software when you compiled it. Right. I got on board with BBSs probably around 1985. I had a Commodore 64 computer with a 300 baud modem. Yeah, uh, for those for those <laughs> of, yeah for those of you who are like saying, oh damn, I got a slow connection. It took me 10 seconds to you know download that song, or I'm listening to Spotify on my phone in a moving car, and the song keeps having to buffer because I'm you know away from the nearest cell tower. You poor babies, okay? It was. <laughs> 
it would take a minute to fill the screen with just text. Downloading basic ASCII took forever. 300 baud is not fast. I mean, if you think about it, 300 baud, it's it's like a, a one megabit file. is like seven or eight hours of transmission time. Oh, sure. And on a 10 megabits per second cable modem, it's like it's, it's less than a second. Right. It's a tenth of a second. So, yeah, the difference is, is vast. I remember having analog-based modems. When I first started to get into computing, I had a 33K modem, which was... Oh, you 30, spoiled brat. 10,000 times faster than the 300 baud modem so that I could send text at the speed of light. Right. So uh, for our listeners, an analog base would be, it went right over the phone line yep. and it it just sounded like, it sounded like R2-D2 on, on methamphetamines. <laughs> it was like, and all that. Yeah. Yes. 33K though. Yeah. 300 baud. 300. That's it. 300. <laughs> yes. Whew. Not fast at all. But again, that sets the tone for like how people can communicate asynchronously mm-hmm. in text. And it sort of set the it set the expectation that this would be the thing that moved into the future. And when DARPANET started to build out, it took this model and started to use it as a way to help sort of figure out their communication protocols and stuff. The protocols that are used to make this BBS work over phone lines and, and what would become Ethernet cables and other things are all off-the-shelf technologies for telecommunication and are still used today. The BBS that we used to use around here, there was one called Superman. There was another one that was out of Westport. I can't remember that one. There was another one called Medieval Manor. Dirt Farmer. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) There's another one called Medieval Manor. That'll be a story for another show. You know, we were just talking about YouTube, like people leaving nasty comments. That is not of its time, okay? Because one of the first things that I was introduced to in 1985 is people being real, real mean on the internet. And we didn't even have internet. Bulletin board services, people would argue back and forth on that. They actually they actually used to have like little what we would now call subreddits just for yep. just for arguing. The sysops, the system operators would be like, look, you guys want to have your little fights over there? Take it in this room. Leave it out off of the main board. Yeah, they actually right. they actually put up little rooms just for fighting. Yeah. <laughs> Two men enter, one man leaves. Yep, yep. And I was one of the worst. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Where, where do we go from here? Uh, more technology. This is the technology oh, show, apparently. So on February 17th, 1959, the United States launches Vanguard 2, which is the very first weather satellite. Oh, nice. Yeah, I don't know what Vanguard 1 did, but Vanguard 2 is the first weather satellite. Well, uh, I'm going to say Vanguard 1 was wrong. It's like Vanguard 1 says it's going to be sunny and it's raining <laughs> out. And they just said, uh, you know what? We're going to push the booster rockets on that one. And then whoosh, out of orbit it went. Uh, Vanguard one didn't have the right trajectory because there was moths in the uh, in the va- in the warm vacuum, the warm like. the warm computation of vacuum tubes. So anyway, uh, oh sh! What did you ask it? <laughs> <laughs> so th- this thing was like, just under two feet in, uh, in diameter. It was designed to measure cloud cover distribution during the daylight portion of its orbit uh, for 19 days, which was the yeah. life of its batteries. So the batteries ran out after 20 days, but it's still there. It's still orbiting the Earth. It's going to be up there for like another 200 years about. And much like my flashlight downstairs, it's full of dead batteries. Oh, I thought <laughs> it, it will never work again. <laughs> I thought, I thought your, your flashlight was orbiting the Earth. No, no, no. It's just, it just has dead batteries in it. Oh, okay. That's why you never put cheapo batteries in your appliances, NASA. 
And I'm just astounded that they had batteries that lasted three weeks at that time. I mean, they must have been a, sh- a surprisingly large amount of D-cell batteries. And they're like, we need all the Ds. Go get all the D batteries if they haven't Radio Shack. This thing's going to weigh a ton. And then that's when you open up the flashlight. You're like, who the hell? What is, whoa, that's, so that's what a flashlight battery is. So that's way different than I thought it would be. Why? I can't see a thing. <laughs> I'm just astounded that that thing is still in orbit. And it's like, I don't know if they got it up there just because, like, why not? You know, or is it hard to catch? You know, <laughs> when... <laughs> well, I, I guess with the amount of space junk that's up there, it's just more of the space junk that's up there. Right. I guess. Well, it's, it's one of those like where you launch it. It's like, well, yeah, it's never coming back. We're never going to get that thing back. You know, unless there's some, cat, cat, you know, catastrophe. Right. And it bumps off the International Space Station or yeah. the Hubble Space Telescope or something. Yeah, but I mean, they're always bringing down, you know, uh, dysfunctional satellites like GPS satellites and that and the other. I mean, not every satellite that's ever been put in orbit is still up there. No, but, but uh, <laughs> that a, one a is. vast majority of them are, yeah. <laughs> well, again, they don't want to bring down the ones that like have a nuclear battery in them because that would be bad. Yeah, it's, it's, getting them down is a lot harder than putting them up. Says you. All right, so what do we got for the 18th? Uh, ending our technology run for today. February says 18th, you. Ni- <laughs> says me. February 18th, 1968, David Gilmore joins the rock group Pink Floyd as Sid Barrett is becoming increasingly unstable and changes the f- sound and feel and everything else of the band. Would you say it changed the trajectory of the band? Oh, I would. Without that, we never would have had the dark side of the moon. Right. It's or nothing related to the... Or Amagawa. <laughs> which, which we talked about on a show a couple of months ago, but it seems like it was just earlier today. <laughs> it was early. It seem like it was just earlier today. Yeah. I think I was making the like the traveling around the moon from the earlier show. Yeah. So I'm following up on three months ago, yeah, everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. so, yeah, Pink Floyd, prior to David Gilmore joining the band, were very, very similar to contemporary music at the time. Um, a little, I mean, not just like the Beatles, but they... They, they were weirder. They like, were, I, yeah, I think, like, yeah, they, yes, were weirder. they were weirder, but they weren't um, a gumma weirder. Yeah, I, don't know. <laughs> I think I think I just heard see Emily play on the radio the other day, and like I every, I bump into that song not very often, right? And I was listening to just how weird that song is structurally. Uh-huh. The same thing with Arnold Lane. It's like popular music, but through this weird prism, yes, that makes it all confusing looking. It's really strange. Yep, that's because Sid Barrett was cuckoo bananas, <laughs> eating acid by the handful. Yes, and apparently, kids. Yeah, apparently uh, David Gilmore was actually Sid Barrett's guitar teacher. Yeah. They like brought him in and, and Sid had to know. Sid had to know he was on his way out. They actually did one album together as a yep. five piece. Yep. Uh, the Sauce of Full of Secrets album. Mm-hmm. Not a bad record. No. At no. all. Nope. And then this weird, is. Weird though. Yeah. <laughs> weird era of Pink Floyd. Like in between Sauce of Full of Secrets and. Well, we'll say Dark Side of the Moon or the one before that, before like Metal, we'll say. Yep. Where there's like these real long instrumentals, like side one of Adam Hart Mother is just an instrumental piece. And it's because Sid was the front man for Pink Floyd and nobody else wanted to be the front man. Right. You know, so that's why they had all these long instrumentals. And then when they started getting popular, basically David Gilmore and Roger Waters started pushing each other out of the way to get to the front. Yeah, wrestling for control of the band for a while. Yeah. And still. I guess. Yeah. I mean, if you follow those guys around on the internet, they still don't like each other. Oh, yeah. They're, they're like in their mid-70s, and they're still like calling each other names and stuff like yeah, that. And yeah, it's, and it's weird. It's not like, I mean, 
like for feuds that have like a public face, it's it's not as as vitriolic as like George Takei versus William Shatner, which is terrible. Mm-hmm. Whenever they talk to each other, I feel bad <laughs> as somebody who likes Star Trek. But when these guys do, like David Gilmore is always so soft spoken and generally respectful. Mm-hmm. Whenever anything comes up. You know, David, is there going to be another Pink Floyd reunion? What's the potential of that? And Roger Waters will be like, yeah, I'd do it. Maybe. I don't know. Mm-hmm. You never know what's going to happen. And David Gibb was like, yeah, that'll never happen. <laughs> you know, and that's just all he says. He goes back to strumming his guitar, whatever he was doing before the interview started. Yeah. And it's so funny to watch the two of them like they have that. They are British to a fault. Yeah. It's just so polite. Just... Yeah, that's definitely going to happen. Yep. <laughs> yes. And right now they seem to be fighting over like the liner notes that go into the re-releases of stuff. Right. A few months back, they were fighting over animals. Right. Because Roger Waters wanted somebody who did something to write something that they were going to put in. David Kim was like, no, <laughs> <laughs> you're not putting that in the record. Yep. Then they, they can't get signed off and finally they did. Yeah. So, and then like, that was another thing. Like Roger Waters, who was a founding member of Pink Floyd, who was a, you know, a, a member of Pink Floyd and... Is inseparable from Pink Floyd. Right. And he put out a solo album and he was like calling up and he was like, Yeah, can you, uh, you know, can you mention on pinkfloyd.com that I have a new album out? And they're like, No. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny, like, you'd think that they would, it's not like, I don't know, like Phil Collins showing up on Peter Gabriel's records to drum. Right. You know, it's it's like they like actively don't like each other. And it's really it's really sad. Like interviews with Nick Mason and stuff are funny, too, because he's like, Roger Waters is a giant dictatorial asshole. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think the musical world is better for it because collectively they're all of their catalog is fantastic. And that's the way I kind of look at like back then. I didn't look at it this way, but the way I look at it now is if I've got Pink Floyd making music, Roger Waters making music, and David Gilmour putting out solo albums too, that's three times as much Pink Floyd music as I would have on a normal yeah. day. So yep. in the end, I'm better for it. And, and I think that like the flavors of the band are different enough that they all have their real high points. You may have an era that you like more than others. Right. But even I'm somebody who like didn't love the Roger Waters less Pink Floyd from what um, Delicate Sound of Thunder and what was uh, momentary uh, momentary lapse momentary lapse of reason Deli- forward. delicate sound of thunder was a live album was a live record so uh I've, we're talking momentary, division bell. momentary lapse yeah. and division bell yeah right and i've gone back and listened to them in the last year yep. and those are really really well put together powerful records so there's something to be said for all of it you just have to sort of i think you have to age into it yeah that that all all goes back to what i always call the coke and pepsi mentality in this country it's like it, it's okay to like both yep uh, that, that's one thing I like about being older is that I can appreciate David Lee Roth and Van Halen without David Lee Roth, you know, kind of thing. Okay, so moving on to uh, the 19th. February 19th. Yeah, February 19th, 1960. The newspaper comic strip, even though it wasn't a strip, it was a single panel. Family yeah. Circus is first published. <laughs> ah, one of my all-time favorite comic strips. Yeah, not gonna lie, I still like it. I uh, I liked it because it was, as a kid, I I liked it because it was different. Because everything else was like three panel, and Family Circus was just this like one circle. Yep, and I always thought they were funny. They spoke well, like to kids. When I was buying those little digests of them when yep. I was like in fifth, fourth grade, fifth grade, whatever at the school book fair. Yep, and I always thought they were wicked funny because I was little. Yep. And as you grow older, you start to sort of identify more with like the parents and there's like another level of kind of humor that's in them. And there was a period in the 80s where Mad Magazine did a, a panel set called the Dysfunctional Family Circus. Yep. 
did a whole bunch. It was like a two pages of panels, and they were all like, you know, someone was possessed by the devil. There was, might have been a murder. There was dad was drunk. Mother was trying to get their cable bill reduced by sleeping with the cable guy. Like all of them were wicked funny, right? But they were really, really like mean about like the family circus, right? Because the family circus was pretty wholesome. Yeah. And the next month, like the lead-off letter in Mad Magazine was from Bill Keane. That's the and guy. That's the guy who drew the, the family circus. That's, that's the guy. Who, yeah, who created the family circus. And it was so funny because he's like, "I really like that dysfunctional family circus stuff. That was pretty funny, except you spelled the author's name wrong." And he's like, "His name is supposed to only have one L in it or something." And it was wicked funny that he was he was in there with this like real good-hearted letter about how funny it was. Yep. You uh, you actually uh, like stole a little bit of my thunder there. Oh. I was gonna mention. That Bill Keen from the Family Circus is one of the other, you know, there's a, only a few of us in the world. Well, actually, he's dead now, so it's just me now. But uh, Bill <laughs> Bill Keen actually spelled his name B I L Keen. Yeah, yep, yep. So he was another one L Bill. I'm not alone. It's not just me. It's not just you. And we're not going to say that you stole that from Bill Keen, but if somebody asks you, just say, not me. <laughs> oh, you're, <laughs> oh, you're clever. I am. I'm Ooh. a smart little fellow. Oh, you're I'm wicked. smarter than the average bear. All right. Uh, wrapping up the week. Such a cheeky monkey. Uh, February 20th, 1954, uh, the Ford Motor Company unveils its sort of flagship sport luxury coupe, the Thunderbird. Ooh. Where she'll have fun, fun, fun until daddy takes it away. Yes. Um, the first, like, it wasn't the first production sports coupe, but it was the first one that Ford made that they marketed towards, like, younger buyers and Single men, so they sold a surprisingly large amount of them that first year. Way more than the competitor that was put together by General Motors, the Corvette. Right. The Corvette would go on to eclipse the the Thunderbird. Yeah, I got the the stats right in front of me right here. Yeah, the Thunderbird, the first year, the 1955 model, sold over 16,000 units. And the Corvette sold about 700. Yeah, I wonder when the I don't know when the Corvette came out. It may have come out later in the year too, which probably hampered it. But Maybe. the first couple of years of the Corvette, they they were like dealing with like fiberglass body problems and like a really weak powertrain. And yeah. I've seen videos of people driving Corvettes from the first year, like fifty three, I think, is the first year for those. Yep. Or fifty four is the first year for those. And they're in there like this car is so small. If you hit a bicycle, you will be dead. That might have been an, a, another thing that hampered their sales too, because I'm looking at a '55 Thunderbird right here, and it's a pretty, it's a pretty beefy car. It's got, yeah. it's got some meat to it. Where the Corvettes are very, very small. Yep. And back in those days, you know, trust me, my mom was born in a different era, uh, like you know, a much different era. And whenever she, you know, got me, well, she didn't buy me my first car. I bought my first car. Uh, with, you know, money that I had inherited from my grandfather. You know, she kind of picked out the car for me. And she right. wanted me to have a big, beefy car <laughs> because she figured... Big, beefy car. Yeah. Yes, I remember that car. Yeah, it was, it was big well, and beefy. Yeah, it was a Mercury Cougar, which was the, you know, the uh, the Mercury equivalent to the Ford Thunderbird. Right. So my first car, in a sense, was a Thunderbird. It was just the Mercury, a Mercury it's, equivalent it's, to it. It's funny because the Cougar... Initially, the Cougar was the was the compadre of the the Badger Junior compadre of the Mustang at the end of the '60s, mm-hmm. and then they switched it when they switched it when the Mustang went to the Pinto body, yes. and it became the compatriot car of the Thunderbird, right? Which was sort of redesigned as a big sort of Luxo barge in the 1970s. It's really interesting if you go back and follow the history of the cars. Yeah, the, I remember. I remember sitting in it, looking out 
over your gigantic hood. <laughs> like, and being seven yards away from the car in front of us, and we were this, almost touching bumpers. Yeah. You're thinking, like, this is what a captain of a ship must look look out right. uh, look at. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It must have been like, like, oh, so this is what it was like on the Titanic. Huh? There's an iceberg coming. I don't know. It's seven miles away, and you can just keep cranking that wheel, but the front doesn't go anywhere. I yeah. smashed headfirst into a tree and barely moved out of my seat. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I will say this, though. Okay. The car was slow. Yep. It was noisy. Yes. It smelled bad. Sure did. And it was hard to get in and out of because it had, like, the weird cop doors on it. Yes. But, boy, was it comfy to sit in and drive around. <laughs> Yeah, um, I you know what I will occasion I am you know how many cars later I will right. occasionally have dreams about that car. Thirty five gray Honda Civics later. Yeah, <laughs> I have that on a sheet someplace. Countless gray Honda Countless Civics later. Countless gray Honda Civics. Yes, a sea of gray. This week's episode of Twibbly is brought to you by Necessary Chances by Norman Duchesneau and published through Austin McCauley. Necessary Chances is a collection of 50-plus stories of actual events told exactly how they happened to the author. The stories span from more than 30 years in the field of law enforcement. As often as possible, the stories are told in a humorous manner because, well, we all deserve a laugh, don't we? The author hopes that this book might inspire one good man or woman to take up the shield someday. In today's world of miscommunication and misunderstanding, the author hopes that somehow, somewhere, a dialogue might open that wasn't there before. Necessary Chances has received five out of five star reviews on Amazon and Austin McCulley. Once again, thank you to Necessary Chances for sponsoring this week's episode. Available on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and through Austin McCulley Publishing. Links will be in the show notes. All right, so let's get on to the celebrity birthdays. February the 14th, 1948, a man simply known as Teller. Huh, the quiet half of, the short and quiet half of Penn and Teller, right? Uh, yeah, uh, except for he's not short. He's shorter uh, than Penn. Yeah, well, that's because... <laughs> it's all relative, I guess. Yeah, Penn is Mr. Freaky Big, uh-huh. you know? Teller is actually normal height, like, as it was put to me, Teller and Art Garfunkel are both the same height. It's wow. just that Penn is freaky tall and Paul Simon is freaky short. I went to see Penn and Teller in Las Vegas about probably about 10, 11 years ago now. They always do a meet and greet after the show. Right. Teller doesn't talk on stage, but right. off stage, you know, it's not like he's mute. He's just, yeah. Right. The reason why he doesn't talk was when he first started out as a magician, he figured out that if he doesn't talk, people heckled him less. So he just never talked. Yeah, oh, it's a self-defense mechanism. I yeah, good, yeah, it was that. good. Yeah, it was a good strategy. Yeah, he's like he's a little taller than I am. What's funny about Teller is he takes no <laughs> and I heard that about him too. Um, uh, you know, we're all gathering around to get our, our stuff autographed, and he's signing my autograph, and I'm talking to him, and this woman says, "Oh, excuse me, I think I was first. and he just looks at her sharply and goes, "I'll decide who's first. <laughs> and it goes right back to talking to me. Yeah. He's the brains of the operation. Most of their illusions of his design. Yeah. I remember yeah. way back before they even had their show, Penn Teller's Bullshit was on. Mm-hmm. They had another show where they, they didn't debunk magic, but they sort of debunked illusions. Yeah. And one of them was uh, running over a guy with a tractor trailer truck. Yes, that's a and, great. That was a great trick. It was yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the way that they showed how it worked was really interesting with all the counterbalance stuff and the yep. foam tires and stuff. Yep. Um, and, uh, and Teller is actually incredibly smart. He's written several articles for Smithsonian Magazine too. Yeah, cool. 
All right, moving on. All right, February 15, 1937, writer Gregory McDonald, whose name you may not know. I don't. But he is the author of the Fletch Detective novel series, which oh. most people know because they've made a couple of movies and threatened to make several movies that never actually got made uh, of yes. Gregory McDonald's books. Uh, I will I will go out and say that Fletch is Chevy Chase's finest moment. It's definitely one of his better films. And I've I've read a couple of Fletch books. I read Fletch and I read Fletch Lives. Yep. Jeez, I can't remember the other one. I don't know, they're, all, they're all sort of smooshed together. Fletch goes to college. Fletch Fletch and friends. Uh, Fletch finds some stuff. But generally, the, they are definitely rooted in the time they're written, and they're written in like ni- late 1960s, early 1970s. So oh, wow. a lot of the fashion and the, the yeah. stuff that the main character, Fletch, the detective, is dealing with is all like, you know, hippies moving acid down the beach and right. cops who like to beat up hippies and all this other sort of stuff. But they're really funny, and they're really good. And, and sup- uh, in the rare case where... The films made of a book for source material stay really close to the plot lines of the book. Both Fletch and Fletch lives. Yeah, Kevin oh, Smith. Worth of, a read. Kevin Smith of Clerks fame was actually supposed to, I think, write and direct a Fletch movie, but that project never got much further than the green light. But in the most recent Jay and Silent Bob film that he did, which I can't recall the name of, it never went to theaters. It was like straight to prime. But he actually makes a Fletch reference in the movie as a kind of like a nod, like, hey, remember when this was supposed to happen, but it didn't? <laughs> there, there was some more recent talk, too, about a, another potential, uh, I can't remember who, the, who they talked about casting, but it was somebody who was really big because they were in like the Marvel films or something. Um, that never happened either. I think Ryan Reynolds would make a good Fletch. Yeah, he probably would. Um, so anyway, worth a read if you can find him. All right, moving on to February the 16th, 1935. Former member of Sonny and Cher, and then former mayor of a city in California. Let me chase that around. <laughs> Palm uh, Springs, I think. Yeah, for, yeah, uh, yeah. I think it was Palm Springs, and then it, I think he actually became a member of the state congress too. Uh, he, Sonny, he was a state rep. Yeah. Yeah, Sonny Bono. Funny how he got involved in politics. He was trying to open up a restaurant. And there was so much like red tape and bureaucracy to get it open that he was like, screw this. And he ran for mayor just basically just so he could open up his own restaurant. <laughs> well, like I like that. Complicated solutions to simple problems or simple solutions to complicated problems. The old Star Trek Kobayashi Maru test. If it's a, it's a test with no way to succeed, cheat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I always remember Sonny Bono in, in uh, Airplane 2. He was the terrorist guy that buys the bomb at the air, the, 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 like the duty free shop. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> it's going gonna to blow up the, uh, the the shuttle. Can I get the second bomb from the left? No, 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 the other <laughs> exactly. one. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, no, no, the other one. That's right. All right. So next up, uh, February seventeenth, nineteen eighty-two, American actor Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who's probably best known for being Tommy Solomon on Third Rock from the Sun. Oh, the little kid. Yeah. Yeah, the little kid who was really the, the oldest person on the, on the crew that was like yes. the captain. That was a great show. It was a good show. And also in that sort of high school set film noir called Brick, which was really, really good. He made, I think he wrote and directed like a re- a remake of the uh, Don Juan story. Yeah. With Scarlett Johansson. And he also starred in it. So he like wrote, directed, and starred in this remake of Don Juan, which I think the whole reason him doing it is because he wanted to fuck Scarlett Johansson. And oh. I... I applaud his efforts, but let me tell you, that movie sucks canal water. 
Look, if that guy wants to open a restaurant, he's going to be going places. Uh, <laughs> so I can appreciate the. Yep. All right. So next up we have on February the 18th, 1947, part-time rock musician, full-time aspiring Broadway star, former singer of the rock band Sticks, Dennis DeYoung. Never before has a world-famous rock and roll star ever wanted to be the guy that wrote the Phantom of the Opera. Yeah, more than and cats than than anyone else. I, I don't understand Dennis DeYoung. I, I've gone back and and listened to Sticks more often than I ever did when they were popular. Yeah, like on popular radio in the last few years, and they are the weirdest, most dysfunctional, messed up band I've come across in a long time. Yeah, you can tell who wrote what song. You know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, Dennis DeYoung never before has a arena rock performer aspired to perform in dinner theaters. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like he, I'm surprised he didn't change his name to like Andrew Lloyd Webber with two B's. <laughs> Guy's got a great voice and was able to sort of be a hard rock band that had a, was fronted by a keyboard player and it and still drew big like stadium sized crowds. And yet, the one song that I remember from theirs the most is "The Best of Times" because it was played at the uh, roller skating rink that I went to as a kid. It's the slow skate song every single week for a hundred million years. That is a bait and switch with that song because. There were two or three videos from that album on MTV in heavy rotation. Three. Rockin' the Paradise is an amazing song that I still love to this day. And the best of times, they both start off with that, tonight's the night, we'll make history. And I'd be get really excited because I love Rockin' the Paradise. <laughs> and then i get like swerved and find out it's the best yeah. of times. It's like, oh, let's see what's on the other channel. Yep. All right. February 19th, 1955, uh, American actor Jeff Daniels, known for being Harold, most often, in Dumb and Dumber of the Harold and Lloyd fame, mm -hmm. but also a very good, like, dramatic actor who was in the Aaron Sorkin produced and written program, The Newsroom. He was the best part of that movie, Looper, also featuring Joseph Gordon-Levitt, oh. and has been in all kinds of stuff that's that alternates between being very, very good, funny, and very, very dramatic, dramatic. I remember you and I went to go see Dumb and Dumber 2. <laughs> and laughing to the point of like we discussed earlier before the show that i almost remember nothing about that movie yeah that's a big it's a big empty void in my brain too yeah. it's weird because we're as we we're talking about it you know i said you know what I, I remember almost everything in like the three stooges movie that and it was wicked funny yeah and i remember almost everything in the original dumb and dumber and it was wicked funny and if you ask me about dumb and dumber too like i i saw it and i remember laughing at it yeah. I mean, well, I don't remember any of the gags that were in it at all. Yeah, well, you've only seen it once, and it was six years ago. So, I mean, that's right. that's something. But I just remember laughing myself stupid. You know what? I think I own it. <laughs> I think I own it. And I haven't watched. I'm gonna have to go back and watch it now because I just remember laughing myself stupid at that movie. And wrapping up the birthdays, February the twentieth, nineteen sixty-seven, Kurt Cobain. Uh, oh, here I am now. Entertain me. Yep, former lead singer. Uh, and guitar player and principal songwriter for Nirvana and pilot of the meteor that crashed into the earth <laughs> and just destroyed heavy metal in the uh, in the early 90s. Yep. And, and the smoldering remains of rock and roll radio are still out there smoldering. Yep. They have not recovered at all yet. As proof of this, Bill, mm -hmm. when I went on vacation a few months back and spent a weekend in Rhode Island listening to WHJY, Oh, yeah. A station that may as well have been placed in a time capsule when I was in high school. Yes. It was playing the same songs that it was playing when I was in high school, except they also played Nirvana songs. Here and there, they'll pepper in a couple of uh, songs, but yeah, it's mostly whatever 
Kurt Cobain took himself out there in April of 1994, it really didn't take me by surprise. He always came across to me like the rock star that was going to die, you know? Yeah. They were already kind of portraying him that way before he died. Yeah. I remember, like, it would be like, this is MTV Music News with Kurt Loder. Look, Kurt Cobain is in Italy and he's collapsed on stage in a dress. And it's like, oh, that's not good. Yeah. And I think he had attempted suicide like a month earlier, too, I think, as like an overdose with like pills and wine or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It really didn't take me by surprise because they were so. Like we've seen this movie before. You know what I mean? They came out and they were too big, too fast. And he was, yep. you know. Some people are just not made to be famous, and I think I think uh, Kurt Cobain was definitely one of them. Like yeah. Axl Rose was not made to be famous. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes, I, I guess. Except he's still, except he's, he's still famous. Yeah, but he <laughs> he was not made to be famous. He did not handle it well at or, all. Or, or or perhaps worse, like Vince Neil. Uh, Vince Neil a few months back who fell off the stage and broke his ribs three songs into his concert. Oh, yeah, that's right, that's right, that's right. <laughs> I watched the clip of that, Bill. Yep. It was very funny. Did you? Dumb and Dumber 2 funny, that's how funny And then poor Vince Neil, like a couple of months prior to that, there was videos going around of him, you know, with his band, and they were closing with Girls, 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 and he got about maybe like <laughs> three words into the song. He's like, nope, I'm done. <laughs> Walks off the stage. Oh yeah, my voice is shot. Yep. And but before before he said that, his voice sounded like this. We boop did to bop because he couldn't remember the he couldn't remember any of the words. Oh, it was, it was, it was <laughs> and then the band just ugly. kept playing with the like, girls, girls, girls. <laughs> yeah, and they're watching him walk off stage, and they're like, "What do you mean you're leaving? <laughs> we still get paid, right? <laughs> right? Uh-huh. Uh, oh my god, that song just sounded like the worst song ever. All right, Jeff, what do we have loaded up in the cannon today for Worst Song Ever? I'm glad you asked. I have loaded up in the cannon today something that were this recorded in the last five or, I'd say five or ten years, you know, unleashed on the public, it would destroy the band that released it and force them into a career-ending spiral of never-ending ridicule, Uh if not outright hatred. But because this was recorded in 1981 to 83, uh, it doesn't have that stigma. This song is, of course, Illegal Alien. Produced, sung, and written by three members of post-Peter Gabriel Genesis. Uh, yeah, it, it came out in 1983, October, October of 1983, the album. Right. And yep. Genesis, self-titled or eponymous or whatever, yep. mm-hmm. is, it's like Michael Jackson's Thriller. You know every song on this album. Right. You every know? song's a single, pretty much. Yeah. Even the, the, the song Mama, which has got about as much top 40 potential as nothing okay right. that is not still charted yep. yeah they had a video for it it's a great song it's just that song sounds like early genesis you know yes. not what genesis was to become the, the songs on the album in order mama that's all home by the sea which is a amazing song then there's an instrumental called second home by the sea then side two just goes crazy where <laughs> it, it opens up with a legal alien
And then the rest of the album is Taking It All Too Hard, another single. Great song. Yep. Just the job to do another great song that was a, yep. uh, not so much a hit, but it was a radio song. Yep. Uh, Silver Rainbow, another radio song that that actually sounds like Peter Gabriel Genesis. And yep. and then here's that one song that you don't know it's gonna get better. It's gonna get better, right? Right. And that's the song that you hear and you go like, is this which record is this one on? This whole album is a weird album in that they're just making that transition to super duper poppy. Yes. From this one, they go to Invisible Touch where. Again, every single song on that album was on MTV in heavy rotation yeah. for a year. And they completed their transformation from like the prog rocky Peter Gabriel stuff through their transitional period to full on three to five minute pop songs. And that's it. In and out. No connective tissue. There's no right. There's no prog rock. None of that stuff. And I like this record because it has that bridge. This one and Abacab are my two favorites right. uh, among their whole catalog. A- Abacab is another one. It's like, oh, my God, every song. <laughs> yeah, great, great album. Yep. Absolutely great album. The thing with Illegal Alien is it's not a bad song. It's actually a great song, except there's the, the, the lyrics just don't happen in 2022. Mm-hmm. Like Phil Collins is singing it in this like almost like fake Mexican accent, yep. which is, again, problematic. And the yes, it is. and the other thing that I always kind of had a problem even back in 1986 is you're over there saying you know all these lyrics like you're Americans you're not Americans you're, you're British you know so and like and the video was very kind of something else too uh, I know a lot of people like kind of like bitch about oh everything's so politically correct now and all that and I think my own personal feeling is that's just a buzzword. Mm-hmm. I do like offensive humor. I do think it has its place and all that. But I don't know if the top 40 is the place for it. This song and everything that comes from the writing through the recording in the video is is like a series of increasingly bad and stupid decisions. So, like, the gist of the song is, you know, at the time, Genesis was having a hard time getting a visa to come and tour the United States. That spurned them to write this song. And at some point in their decision tree, Phil Collins, who wrote the lyrics, said, we need an analog for a band trying to get a visa. I know. <laughs> Mexican immigrants trying to get into Texas or Arizona. Right. And everybody said, sounds great, Phil. And he's like, all right. And then that's bad decision number one. Bad decision number two is they're in the studio. And I'm sure Hugh Patton, the producer, who is one of Peter Gabriel's producers, goes, Phil, do that funny accent thing you want to try. <laughs> and he does it. And he's like, yeah, that's the stuff. Bad decision number two compounding bad decision number one. Right. And then bad decision number three is when they're sitting down with the video director goes, let me make sure I understand this, Phil Collins and the members of Genesis. You're in sombreros and serapes, and you're singing in a fake Mexican accent with a pasted-on, glued-on mustache in what looks like a Mexican town in the most stereotypical and offensive way we could possibly ever make this and still get it on TV. And they go, right. All right, I'm in. And I just have one question. How do you feel about bandolero belts? Right, exactly. Yes. And then MTV played it. You know, can we get a mariachi band in here somewhere? And uh, they do. It was, and yes, they do. They do. There's a mariachi uh, band and guitar and stuff like that. One of the lyrics is, uh, over the border that lies the promised land, when everything comes easy, you just hold out your hands. It's like, my God, I bet you Tucker Carlson jerks off to this song. I bet, I bet you he does. Yeah, it's, it's bad. And it's bad and it's stupid. And, and they leaned into it. They leaned into it hard. And when they toured in 84, they played it live. 
because it was it charted. Right. And that, I guess that's a testament to how bad we are just as people. It charted in the States. It charted in England. Oh, the song was everywhere. everywhere. I mean, it was a very popular video on MTV. And in 1986, you know, uh, uh, 15, 16, 17-year-old Bill was like, <laughs> you know, laughing right. it up. And like, yeah. I went back. Doing my, doing my terrible Mexican accent to sing along with yeah. it. Oh, it's just not good. And I went back and I listened to the song today, uh, you know, prep for the show. And I was like, I hate liking this song or I like hating this song, however you want to word it. Because musically, and if you just like hum along with it, like don't sing the words, just right. like, you know, the, the cadence of the verse and all that is really good, you know, and you can hear Tony Banks writing, like... Oh, you definitely just have yeah. to rewrite all the lyrics into right. a different song and then sing it, like Kid Rock would do. He'd probably <laughs> write a song about how hard he worked to uh, to, to become a musician, and now he's a musician. Yeah, and, well, you don't know. There you go. What everybody doesn't know is we just talked about Kid Rock <laughs> 10 minutes ago, but for you, it was, like, eight weeks ago. Eight, week, eight weeks back, yeah. Yeah, yeah like, it's got a very Tony Banks, like, you can tell Tony Banks writing. He, he has a very distinct style to him. That pre-chorus, the but don't tell anybody what yeah. I want to do, that part is so good. And then it just, yeah, it's like, sorry guys, I don't want to don't want to be like that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a shame. And, and it kind of mars the album now. It's like a weird curiosity. Not that anybody goes back and listens to a lot of Genesis now anyway, I right. think. I think that turning Phil Collins into a laughing stock kind of thing is it's it hasn't run its course. They're doing their final tour, or they have finished their final tour by the time this comes out. I'm going to guess this song is um, not on the set list. I don't think so. I mean, Phil Collins is so frail now yeah. that he he just sits on stage and he can't play drums and he can barely walk. But I've gone back to listen to their to their music yep. just because I have it. And, you know, I don't listen to the same stuff all the time. So I went back, I don't know, a couple, couple months back and I went through whatever I have of their catalog and I was amazed at how good this was. And I thought about how rare it is to hear this sort of, this music as pop music now. Mm-hmm. It just isn't made anymore. Right. The same way. If you go back to the comedians of the 80s, a lot of the humor in the 80s was very xenophobic, very homophobic. Right. So like this kind of humor fits in 1983 whatever year this album came out right it fits in 1983 it doesn't fit in 2022 and that's okay right you know whenever i go back and i show my friends like old movies from the 70s yeah you have to put a disclaimer up like hey look yeah (laughs) you know you're gonna have problems with some of this keep in mind this is 40 some odd years old yes right i'm not saying this is a great song because we make fun of mexicans or something like that i'm saying this song had its place and that place is in 1983 it doesn't really have its place now you know what i mean right good idea ruined by a bunch of dumb dumb decisions and and even even at the time it came out it was reviewed harshly as being like are you sure you want to make a single out of this yeah. like this is borderline racist and it's not even borderline anymore so yeah terrible okay can we do over the silver rainbow that's a much better song <laughs> right I, and with everything else that's on this record at like at what point were they like uh, illegal alien should be the next one that we put out. Yeah. yeah, you know what I mean. It should have been like Phil Collins, like farting should have been like, or arguing with the other two about illegal alien right. coming out as a signal should have been the single. Uh, whenever we always start the segments, we always kind of not always, but we sometimes kind of give it like its own category. And yeah. this song gets filed under the category. Nobody said no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. How did nobody say no? Yeah. All right, so before we wrap up the show, I do have my award-winning and always very popular trivia question. Uh, This week's trivia question, if you recall, was what was the last 
Hollywood movie released in the VHS format? I'm going to give you the, the strange answer, but is it Be Kind Rewind? Oh, wow. That would be an excellent guess. If it wasn't wrong. <laughs> yeah. That would be an excellent guess, and, and irony would win the day. But nope, you're, yes. you're wrong. It was a movie called A History of Violence, which was released in 2006. Oh, yeah. That was a good flick. Yep. And that was the last mo- last Hollywood movie that was released in the VHS format. It should have yep. been. Be kind, rewind. It should have been. We should petition the the movie the movie studio to release Be Kind Rewind in the VHS format, and they can write us back and say no. <laughs> yes, or, or they can write back and say, okay, 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 we'll release one copy, and then I will have gotten the trivia question correct. All right, but that is a wrap for this week. We will see you back here in about seven days. Say goodnight, Jeff. Goodnight, Jeff. Bye, guys. And be kind, rewind. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening to Twibbly, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Special thanks to James Coster for our theme music. You can find us and message us on Instagram and Facebook using TWWWBLY. Make sure you tell all of your friends about our podcast. Then go out and make new friends and tell them about it too.